The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you want to open up your Bibles, we are in Mark chapter 14. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can find it on your app on your phone, or we scattered some Bibles out on the floor. You can grab one uh, at your feet. We're going to be at Mark chapter 4. If you got my Bible, that's page 1329, if I can help you out any. Now, what is worship? Worship, here we go, worship is the expression of reverence or adoration to a God. Thus saith Wikipedia. So let me break it down for you just a little bit. What is worship? A worship, here's what worship is. Worship is a transaction, okay? It's a transaction between a person and a God. Worship is what a person gives to a God. It could be singing, right? That could be worship. It could be obedience, obeying said God. It could be money, it could be prayers. It could be any kind of obedience. If you, if you look in you know, pagan gods, they've sacrificed children. They've done all kinds of terrible things. Anything you offer to a god, anything you give to a god, that in itself is worship. Any praise, any gift, any obedience. But here's the big idea, okay? Worship, in order for it to be worship, worship has to cost a person something. That's what it is. It's what we give to God. Worship always costs a person something. It could be your time. It could be your devotion. It could be your heart or your love or your resources. But it's not worship if it doesn't cost you something. In 2 Samuel 24, um, David uh, has disobeyed God and he's going to offer a sacrifice to God and he's out and he goes to this guy's house and he says, we're gonna, can we use your altar? We're gonna offer a sacrifice to God. And the man says, you bet, here, here's my altar. You can use my animals, you can use my wood, you can use all my resources and you can offer a sacrifice to God as an act of worship. And David says, absolutely not. I will not offer to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. 
I will pay for it. So he pays for the wood, he pays for the use, and he pays for the cattle that he ultimately ends up sacrificing. This is obviously back in the Old Testament time. So that's the first thing we need to know about worship. Worship always costs a person something. You can't worship if it doesn't, if you, if freely, right? You can't, worship is the thing that you give to God. Worship always costs us something. It's our gift that we give to a God. But here's the second idea. Your worship is determined by the percep- your own perception of the worth or value of your God. Now, this should make sense, right? If you perceive your God to be small and weak, or he, maybe he's one of a billion different gods, your worship will be correspondingly small. Let me just think about this. If I have to worship 10 different deities, right? I got to break up my worship, right? So let's just say, if I have $10 to give, I'm giving a dollar to each deity, right? So your worship's going to be correspondingly small. But if I believe my God is of infinite value, right? My worship is going to correspond to that. If, I, if my God in my image, my perception of my God is really small, he's not a big deal. So whatever I give him is probably not a big deal. He's probably happy with anything, right? Poor guy, right? My worship is going to be small. But if my image of God or my vision of God is big, if I see him as supremely valuable, your worship will be supremely costly. Now, if you're not a religious person this morning, or you're in here and we welcome you and we thank you that you're here, or you're not a, you don't call yourself a Christian, you might be tempted to like zone out. Oh, he's talking about worship. I'm not a worshiper. I don't worship. I'm not into that kind of stuff. I'm not a religious person or a spiritual person. I'm going to check out. But if you would do that, I think you're going to be making a big mistake. Because what's surprising many people is that everyone worships. Okay? You don't have like these religious people over here who worship and then like these irreligious people over here that choose not to worship. Every single human being on the planet worships something. We were made, scriptures tells us, imago Dei in the image of God and therefore we were made with the sense of God in us that we have to worship something. We worship whatever it is that we see as supremely valuable. Okay? Whatever we see has the highest value, that thing is what we worship. No one cannot worship. Think of it like this. Our hearts are like a garden hose with the nozzle turned on and no thing on the end of the, whatever you want to call it. The spigot turned on and no nozzle on the end of the hose, right? So our, think of that hose. It's always pouring out. Okay? That's the way our hearts are. We are made in the image of God. We're natural worshipers. So we're always worshiping. The real question is, what is your hose pointed at here, right? What is the heart pointed at? Because whatever you see is supremely valuable, that is what you will worship. We are always worshiping. We don't not worship out there and then come in here and turn worship on. We're always worshiping. Whatever you value, as, whatever you see is supremely value valuable, that is the thing you're going to worship. Now, how do we know? How do we know what we worship? Follow the stream. Follow your worship and you're going to find your true God. There are many people who think that Christians worship on Sunday morning and the way we do this is really weird. There's many of my friends that say, man, I came to the gathering. It's kind of weird. 
you sing, you all wake up early to, to gather here and you sing songs and many people lift their hands and some people even have tears streaming down their face. We have liturgy where some person reads something and you respond and you read back and forth. It was so weird. There's reading of scripture, 2,000 year old book, right? People give their money. It just seems so weird, this way you worship. But many of those same people have their own liturgies. They wake up early. They dress in the same colors as their friends. They carpool together to a giant cathedral where they paint their faces and raise their hands and give their money and sing and dance and even weep over the performance of their favorite football teams. This is worship. This is worship. You, it costs you something. You pay for the ticket. You pay for the gas. You pay for the face paint, right? And the performance of your team, you lift and sing and shout and rejoice or you weep, grown men. Weep. I, I'm one of them. I'm one of them, right? Tomorrow night, the affections of my heart will be determined by 19-year-old men in tights on a field, Okay? It's just going, to, it's just reality, right? It's just reality. Now, what, what we need to see, though, is that is worship, okay? That is worship. No one can say, oh, I don't worship. I'm not a worshiper. No, no, no. You're going to value something supremely, and then you're going to give your affections and your worship and your money to something. And whatever the majority of your money and the majority of your thoughts and the majority of your heart is going to, that is the God that you worship. You say, no matter what you say, you worship whatever it is you see as supremely valuable. Football, family, education, career, money, whatever it is, you are giving to it already. You are worshiping something right now. Your money and your heart are connected to it, and that is your God. So the question isn't, do you worship? The question is, what do you worship? Where is the garden hose of your heart pointed? Where is your affection and your love and your devotion and your thoughts and your money flowing to? So I hope everyone is going to be moderately engaged this morning. The issue isn't, do I worship? The issue is what or who do I worship? And what we're going to see this morning is the person who worships Jesus is happy, while the person who worships anything else is doomed for disappointment. So let's just jump in our text, 14, chapter 1. I'm going to read it. We'll go through it. Here we go. We're jumping into the text. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, this text, this tells us we are on Wednesday of Holy Week, okay? The Passover, what is the Passover? The Passover was a worship celebration commemorating and in memory of what is called the Passover from Exodus 12, where the, the uh, Israelites were in Egyptian slavery. Remember, Moses, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, no, I don't want to. All kind of miracles took place. The plagues took place. And then finally, Moses says, if you don't let, my if you don't let God's people go, your firstborn is going to die. Every firstborn is going to die. And God tells Moses, kill a lamb, put the blood on the doorposts of your house, and literally, the angel of death is going to go through the city, and anyone with the, the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, 
I will pass over and no one will die. And anyone without the blood, the death will come to that person, to the, to the, firstborn, to the firstborn son. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, all of the Israelites who put blood on the doorpost were rescued. They, God passed over them. And the Egyptians, many people died. And they finally said, fine, get out of here, go. And then they sent them on their way. All right, so this is a, they celebrate this every year, the Passover. And that would, that would take place on, uh, that would take place this week. And, and then there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's the Feast of Unleavened Bread? The week after they left, okay? So in Egyptian slavery, they leave, they leave so hastily that they don't have time for their bread to rise, okay? So they're out and they're eating unleavened bread in the desert on the way to the promised land. And so the, 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 the Jews would celebrate the Passover and then the next seven days is a feast of unleavened bread where they celebrate the time where they left Egypt. God delivered them from Egypt and they left so fast they didn't even have time for their bread to rise. So that's what's going on right here. And about 30,000 people lived in Jerusalem, small city. But during the Passover and during the feast of unleavened bread, that number would at least triple the, histor- the Jewish historian Josephus said a million people would show up. That's not been confirmed, but that's what the his- Jewish historian says. He kind of have a tendency sometimes to exaggerate things. But at least, it would at least triple. So Jerusalem was the only place you could celebrate Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that makes this next sentence that we're going to read really frightening. Let's read it. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that's Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now listen, while the Jewish people are gathering together, they're coming from all around the surrounding regions to gather together to worship God for his deliverance, right? His redemption, bringing them out of Egyptian slavery, the Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests and the religious leaders are gathering and conspiring how to kill and capture the Son of God. Think about that. The people are gathering to worship. The religious leaders are gathering to kill and crucify Jesus. Now, if you've been with us this entire year, as we've studied Mark, this is probably no surprise. The religious leaders have resisted Jesus since the very beginning. They will not worship him, but they do worship. We have seen them worship power. We've seen them worship control. We've seen them worship their own reputations in the eyes of people. The Jewish leaders hated Jesus because Jesus made them look bad. Jesus called them hypocrites. And he exposed their greed and how they oppressed the poor. And they did not want to lose the power that their positions in society had given them. They did not want to lose that power and that prestige and that esteem in the eyes of people. And so they hated Jesus. So they worshiped the false God of their own making. They worshiped their own identities and sought a way to kill the one and only true son of God, Jesus. Their worship made them wicked. It wasn't that they failed to worship. Their worship made them wicked. They worshiped themselves. And therefore, there's there's a, a theme in the Old Testament that says, you become what you worship. You become like what you worshiped. 
It says, and the, the psalmist says that they worshiped idols, deaf and they could not hear, dumb and they could not think, mute and they could not speak, and they worshiped them and became like them. What does that mean? If you worship false gods, your heart gets hard. Your mind gets clouded. You become like them. And that's exactly what we see here. Their worship made them wicked. It turned their hearts cold and hard and caused them, this is just, it's scary, caused them to miss out on the most amazing gift of grace that mankind has ever been given. The Son of God left heaven, walked earth, came to live a perfect life and die a substitutionary death for them. And these religious leaders looked on him and hated him because they worshiped their self and not the true God. But then what Mark does here, it's kind of fascinating. He loves using this kind of sandwich technique that is meant to help us understand the meaning behind what is going on. And so Mark sandwiches this story Basically, you've got people worshiping wrongly. Then you've got the story of an unnamed woman who worshiped Jesus, right, Jesus rightly in between these two, peop, two instances where people don't, okay? So Mark is sandwiching this together so we can get it, so we can understand it, all right? Now let's look at verse three. And while he was at Bethany, Jesus, in the house of Simon the leper, so this is two miles outside of Jerusalem, it's where he would go to, to hang out, basically. He was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Simon the leper, uh, more than likely, he was a, a person who had leprosy who Jesus had healed. He's, and he just, the nickname stuck, right? There's a lot of guys named Simon back in the day. And so this guy, unfortunately, just got labeled Simon the leper. Uh, if he was still leprous, he would not be having a party at his house. Obviously, he was quarantined and, and, and people could not show up at his house. But this, more than likely, he was a person that Jesus had healed of leprosy. And now he's having a gathering in his house. And Jesus, verse 4, was reclining at table. It's, well, that's interesting. It's, I can use this as an illustration. This is about the height of, of tables, um, in the Near East, where Jesus would have been worshiping at this time. This is about the height. And so they would literally have pillows stretched out on the floor, and they would lay out and prop up on one shoulder with their feet kicked out this way, and they would chill and eat and drink, and that's how they, that's how they had dinner. Okay, so we got Jesus literally chilling on the floor here of Simon the leopard's house. Okay, let's keep reading. <clears throat> As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, alabaster is kind of like pottery, okay? Think about a piece of pottery. That's what alabaster is. It's like this uh, gypsum kind of product. And long, more than likely, uh, you can Google it and look them up, but they're all different shapes and sizes, but this one more than likely had a long neck because she's literally going to break it, break it open. And it's full of uh, pure nard is what it's called. And this is a perfume that is made from spikenard and imported from India. Uh, Mark says it was very costly. He's going to say here, it was worth, he says it's very costly. And then in the next sentence, he's going to say it cost 300 denarii. Now we've already learned back in earlier in Mark, the one day's labor was one denarii. All right. So this is literally a, a year's salary. 
okay? This bottle of perfume was worth one year of, of, of a normal person's salary. So put that in our day and age and our value in the Quad Cities. Let's just say that this jar of perfume valued uh, about $25,000, okay? This one jar of perfume was valued at about $25,000. And she takes her most valued possession and she breaks it open and she literally dumps it on Jesus. Let's keep reading. She broke, this was, uh, let me see, came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, Mark puts in there, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. Now, this wasn't something that was common in that day and like we just don't do it anymore. Like you never know when someone's gonna break in and just dump oil on your head, right? Party's here, let's do this, right? No, this is something out of, you know, out of the cultural norm. This was meant to show us this is an extravagant, kind of almost, I don't want to say the word obnoxious, but, but you're going to see from the, the response of the disciples, this was a shocking thing to happen, okay? This woman comes in and just dumps this perfume on his head. And John tells us that she even uh, begins to dump it on his feet and, wa- and wash his feet with her hair. This was extravagant, but I'm going to say it was appropriate to who Jesus really is as the Son of God. Now, this is what we need to see. This woman, she saw Jesus as supremely valuable. Jesus meant more to her than her most prized possession. More than likely, this gift, this perfume had been passed down from generation to generation. And this was her most cherished gift, probably set on her mantelpiece at home. They probably would dip their finger in it on on special occasions like weddings. They would dip their finger in it, put it on, and go. And she takes it and breaks it open and dumps it on Jesus and wastes it all. 25K in one act of worship. This is worship done right. So my first point was what is worship? It's the, it's the gift that you give to a God. It's the act of service that you give to a God, right? The second thing is ev- who worships? Everybody worships. Everybody worships. But here's the third one. What does it mean to worship God rightly? What is worship done right? Here it is, and we see three things from it. One, first, in order to worship God rightly, you have to see Jesus as supremely valuable. Jesus has to be the most glorious thing you you can even conceive. Conceptually, mentally, get a picture in your mind. Jesus has to be supremely valuable to all of that, to everything in your life, family, friends, money, career. Jesus, you see Jesus as supremely valuable. Secondly, what we see here is this woman, she gives her best. She, She doesn't give her leftovers. She doesn't, you know, spend her money on herself and then, you know, dig around in the couch cushions to find something to worship God with. She brings her very best. Jesus says it like this. In verse H, he says, she has done what she could. What does that mean? She's done what she could. Jesus has already showed us what this means when there was a poor woman in the temple who gave two pennies. Do you remember that? And Jesus said, this woman has given more than anybody else. What's he mean? She gave what she could. It's not about the amount that you give. It's about giving your best to Jesus. 
That's worship done rightly. It's giving him your best time of the day. It's giving him your clearest thoughts of the day, the time where you can focus on him. It's giving him the top of your heart in worship. It's giving him your best gift financially at the first of the month. It's giving him your best. It's doing what you can, not your leftovers. And thirdly, we see worship done right. What's surprising, especially for us probably as Americans, she makes no demands. She doesn't pop this thing open, dump it on Jesus, and go, Jesus, I got this son. I, I got this big problem. I just spent 25K, and I need you to do me a little something, right? She's not, this is not let's make a deal, right? I'm going to give this to you, and you make sure I never get cancer. I'm going to give this to you, and you make sure my kids never go crazy, right? I'm going to give this to you, and I expect you to continually bless me all of my life and just make my path straight. I'm going to give this to you, and I want you to get my candidate to get into office. <laughs> this is no deals. See, worship isn't commerce. There is a transaction, but it's not commerce. It's not, I'll do this for you, and I expect you to do this for me. That's religion. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This woman breaks it open, pours it on his head, and expects nothing in return. But we've already seen in our text, everyone doesn't see Jesus as supremely valuable. I think many of us, we confessed our sins this morning. Many of us would say, it's, it's very hard for us to see Jesus as supremely valuable. And look what his disciples say. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, okay? There's some who are angry. Why was the, this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And what's interesting, in the Greek, this word for scold literally means they snorted like horses. Right? So this woman comes in. Jesus is chilling at a table. She breaks this thing open, pours it on his head, and they go, <laughs> What? Oh. That's a $25,000 dumped on his head. And indignantly, we could have sold that money and gave it to the poor. Now, so John tells us there's one Judas Iscariot there who was in charge of the money bag. He was the treasurer and he was a thief. And he did not say this uh, because he cared about the poor. He said it because he, got, he was thinking this. If we sold that for 300 denarii, I could steal some of it. And that would be good for me. So he's frustrated. He snorts like horses. Everyone doesn't see Jesus as supremely valuable. And so this woman's act of worship looks ridiculous, looks extravagant, looks like a waste of money to them. But here is a spectacular truth about the right worship of Jesus. It always brings its own reward. It's not commerce. I don't worship so that he can give me. But my worship, done rightly, always brings its own reward. Look what Jesus says to her here. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. So Jesus stands up for this woman. 
He approves of this act that she did. Why do you trouble her? Look at this. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now that blew my mind this week. That was a totally new thought for me. I have never thought of Jesus being captured or awed by something beautiful. I have never thought of Jesus going, whoa, that was beautiful. But he does here. And honestly, I can't think of a greater reward on this earth than for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to look at something you have done in his honor and say, absolutely beautiful. Just blew my mind this week. Think about it. The eyes that have seen every galaxy, the eyes that have gazed upon every planet and every star in all their glory, the eyes that have seen, the eyes that have really painted every sunset and every sunrise in every part of the world, right? In all their glory and grandeur. The The eyes who have gazed upon every mountain vista and every ocean floor who's seen all the wonders of the world. Those same eyes look upon this woman and her act of worship, her extravagant act of worship, and go, whoa, that's beautiful. Unbelievable. Just beautiful. And I guarantee you, This woman, now it doesn't say here, so maybe this is conjecture. This woman probably danced home, okay? The son of God looked at something she did and said, that was beautiful. She, this is, kind of goes with Mark's theme too. An outsider comes in. The disciples, we could have sold that. We could have pawned it, right? They miss it. They miss it. And this outsider comes in and does something and Jesus goes, beautiful. See, rightly worshiping Jesus has its own rewards. This woman, I guarantee you, she left happy. No matter what was going on in her life, we don't know. You know, if this, this was uh, the same woman from John and she, pro- she had been a prostitute, she's got a checkered past, But in this moment, the Son of God, literally God himself says, beautiful. And she goes home happy. Rightly worshiping Jesus will make you supremely happy for eternity. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. I'm not saying everything is perfect and everything is happy. But rightly worshiping Jesus will make you happy. Now look at this. And he says this, verse seven. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you'll not always have me. Now, this is not an excuse to ignore the poor. Jesus already showed us through Mark. He has a great concern for the poor. He feeds the poor. He takes care of the poor. All through the Old Testament, we're commanded to take care of the poor. All through the New Testament, we're commanded as Christians to take care of the poor. So this statement does not counter everything else in the Bible. What Jesus is saying is very specifically, she's done something good right? And it's okay for her to anoint me, to worship me, to spend the money on me right now. The poor is literally, they'll be there tomorrow and you can bless them and serve them and take care of them tomorrow. 
but I won't be with you always. And what's Jesus talking about? This is the ball that's been rolling from the very beginning of Mark. We've put, kind of pushed it up the hill for the first 14 chapters, and now we've crested the hill, and the ball is beginning to roll, and Jesus Christ is getting closer and closer and closer to his death and crucifixion. That's coming, and Jesus here prophesies it. He says this in verse 8. She's done what she could. She has anointed. Now, this woman probably didn't understand this. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus says, this is preparing me. This is the spices that are put on me so I can be put into a grave. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So this woman is literally immortalized for this act of worship. And what's funny is, Jesus, obviously your words are true, because here 2000, right, 2016 or so, years later, we're preaching about this woman, we're talking about this woman. We're, this has been fulfilled, right? And then look. Then Judas Iscariot who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him. This is a shocking and terrifying verse. Everyone does not see Jesus as supremely valuable. In fact, one of Jesus' chosen 12 apostles sees financial gain, sees money as more important than Jesus Christ. Why in Mark chapter 4 did Jesus say, Beware the deceitfulness of riches? When he's talking about the four soils, he said one of the soils that doesn't produce fruit that the gospel can't grow in is a, is, a, is a soil that's been deceived by riches. Why last week was he saying over and over, beware, watch out, stay alert? The apostle Paul says, beware the love of money for, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, is money the root of all evil? No, the love of money. But is there, I mean, I love me some money. I should be honest, right? And what we see here is that one of Jesus' close, closest apostles, one that he chose, worships money, and so he gives up Jesus. Do you see the transaction there? Worship always costs you something. What did it cost Judas? It costed him Jesus. Judas willingly gave up Jesus to worship his true God, money. See, everyone worships. This woman worships Jesus and gives her prized possession to him. And what does she get? She gets his blessing. She gets his happiness. Literally, 1 Timothy uh, 1, 11, it says this is the gospel of the blessed God. A better interpretation is this is the gospel of the happy God. Okay? The happy God enabled her to share in his happiness. That's what, that was that transaction there. She gave up what she had 
and God literally made her happy. What is Judas? Judas gives up Jesus to gain money. We see the religious leaders here. They worship their own prestige and their own esteem. And so it's easy for them to go behind closed doors and sneak around and make a dirty deal with Judas for 30 pieces of silver. And what does it say? And they were glad. They were happy. Think about that. Everyone worships. The question is, what do you... What do you see as supremely valuable? Because whatever that is, that's what you're going to worship. And for many of us this morning, let me just say it like this, because I'm going to build it a little bit, okay? How valuable is Jesus to you? How valuable? Maybe this, how beautiful is he? to you? Do you cherish him? Does he bring awe and wonder to your soul when you think about him? See, this woman, she saw Jesus like that, and so she gave up her most treasured, that's worship. So the problem, really, most of our problem, and I think hopefully everyone in here, now if you're a visitor or you're new, and, and, you're, and you're like, I don't see Jesus as supremely valuable. Do all these people see Jesus? No, they don't. Neither do I. So the point of me asking that question is to let that settle on us to say, in one sense, guys, we're crazy. Literally. Because Jesus Christ is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus Christ made everything that our eye can see, every wonder, Everything that we go, yes, and we enjoy on earth was made by Jesus Christ. And obviously, if he made it, he's better than it, right? And so to worship anything else would be to be folly and to be foolish. We should worship Jesus, but we are, this is what sin does. This is what sin is. It infects us. And so we see an advancement in our career as more attractive to us than the Son of God. And this is why there is a huge fight in our life to be able to see rightly, okay? There's this huge war that's going on in your soul right now. There's a war that's going on of what, what do you see valuable? What do you see of the highest, utmost value? Do you see Jesus or do you see some other thing that, that the world's created, that God's created, that's given you? Created things are great, but they're not supreme. And so if we're honest this morning, I don't want people to think, oh, there's people in here that completely, you know, see Jesus as supremely valuable all the time, but I'm not one of them and I'm, I'm really bad for that. No, no, no. This is why we all publicly confess our sins every single week. We're all sinners. We all devalue God. We all fail to see him rightly. And so this is why the Sunday gathering is so important, that what we want to do on the Sunday gathering is stir your affections for the risen Jesus. We want to clear your eyes of the cloudy vision and help you see the resurrected Jesus in all his glory and all the work that he's done for you. Why? You might be in here going, why should I value Jesus? Because we are huge sinners. I'm just going to say it. And here's the just punishment of God on sinners. Every single sinner 
should go to hell and, and be cast away from God for eternity. That's the just judgment of God. All of our sin deserves that. And yet, instead of doing that to every single human being on the planet, God sends Jesus Christ, his one and only son. Jesus does what we cannot do. Jesus valued God supremely every moment of his life. He obeyed God perfectly every moment of his life. He worshiped God completely every moment of his life. And then, instead of being glorified, for his perfect obedience, Jesus took our sin upon himself and died the death that we all deserve. The hell that we should experience for our disobedience, Jesus experienced it on the cross. This is why we should just be blown away by Jesus. He was perfect where we are not, and yet he died for us to forgive us and save us from our sins. That should blow us away. If someone walked up to you right now and go, how much do you owe in student debt? and you gave your number, 20, 40, 60, 100, 200, and they go, let me write a check. You would be blown away that they just paid that debt. If you want to do that, start with me. Anybody in here? Okay? <laughs> start with me. Just throwing it out there. Right? You would be blown away. If the bigger your debt, the greater your worship, the greater your joy. If you see your debt as... You, there's no way you could ever fulfill it. There's no way you could ever pay it back, your debt to sin, right? There's no, if you see that debt huge, then your worship's going to be huge because Jesus filled that for you. Jesus paid that for you. See, this should bring us worship. This is why we come into the gathering and we want to be reminded of the value of Jesus. This is why we go to missional community. This is why we read our scriptures. This is why we pray. It reminds me of the value of Jesus. But ultimately, for all of us, when you th it's on the cross that we see the ultimate, infinite value of Jesus. It's on the cross. Think about this. Jesus is the true, I'm a, is the true and better alabaster lady. <laughs> right? She breaks open her most valued possession in worship, Jesus on the cross literally is broken open himself. He doesn't give 25,000, he gives his life. And he's stabbed and blood and water flow from his side and he's got a crown of thorn and he's beaten and he's pierced. Jesus was the alabaster flask that was broken for us. See, Jesus is the true and better, if this is Mary or whatever alabaster lady this is, Jesus is the true and better. That's, when you think about that, that should stir your heart to worship and whatever, and then here's the right answer. What do you want from me, Lord? And whatever it is that he wants, you willingly give it up because you look at the cross and you look at what he did for you. You look at that act of worship, that perfect act of worship to our heavenly father that Jesus did that saves us from our sins. And then you say, what, what do you want from me? What do you want from me, Lord? That's what I want us to think about this morning. And that's why the Lord gives us, in the next two weeks, we'll be specifically talking about the Lord's Supper because that's what they're stepping into. They're going into the Lord's Supper next week and then the week after. And um, this is the sign and the seal of what Jesus did on the cross. It's just two different analogies. Listen, he's the alabaster, alabaster flask that was broken, right? 
that poured out, his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Well, he also gives us bread and wine, the bread that is broken, just like his body that is broken, his flesh was torn. I'll tear the, I'll tear the bread this morning. We break it in front of us because Jesus Christ's body was broken for us. And what else? His blood was shed for the remission of sin, and that blood is represented by the wine or the grape juice that you take this morning. So this is our chance to worship God. If you're a believer this morning, I want you to come, I want you to take the body, I want you to take the blood, and I want you to think about this perfect act of worship. And I want everyone in here, we should all repent of our devaluing, our inability to see the value of Jesus so often. We should repent of that and say, Father, I repent of my inability to see you clearly, my, my, that I constantly devalue you in my mind and in my heart, and I don't worship you rightly, and I ask that you would change me and you would give me faith and you would help me obey you and you would help me worship you rightly. That's the proper response this morning for anyone in here. Christian, unbeliever, that's how you become a Christian and that's how you continue your life as a Christian. Repentance and faith, that's what it is. I'm gonna pray this morning. Father, we do thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your power. You sent Jesus Christ and Jesus lived a perfect life that we fail to live day in and day out. That we worship our kids. We worship security. We worship success and power. Ultimately, we worship ourself. We value our own needs and our own desires and our own wants above yours and your church. And we confess that to you this morning. We ask that you would uh, forgive us, that you would give us grace but you'd also, through the power of your spirit, motivate us to live different lives in the future, that we would worship you rightly, that we would um, learn something from this woman today, and that we'd give you our best. We'd worship you rightly because Jesus has given his best to us. I thank you for this. I pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.